Friends, it's an enormous privilege to take part in this Abraham and Millie Arbusfeld Kolo and Midrashet Yom Rishon to thank uh, Robin and Shuki Grossman for sponsoring today and to say what a real privilege and delight it has been for Elaine and myself to have had this wonderful three years together with this great and unique institution. I salute President Joe for your incredible leadership. I salute, please, the really, really remarkable academic staff that make this so great an institution. And in particular, I salute the students here at YU and at Stern College. That is the future of our community, and it's a great future. Friends, um, you know, they always used to... I always remember that, that, that uh, old conversation in which you know, a husband and wife is discussing the division of labor. And husband explains, I deal with the big things, she deals with the little things. I deal with uh, climate change, global warming, universal peace. She deals with the little things, where to live, how to bring up our children, etc. And of course, the funny thing about this funny thing it's Chazal already said it. Dabba Gadol, the big things, my separations, my Zemetova, the mystic visions of, of, uh, of uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, and the little things, Hamaiz Dabba Those the, the debates in the Gemara, they're the little things. Now we know it is the little things that make the Jewish world. It's the attention to detail. It's the Kedushah involved in all of these things. But there comes a time when we need to give some attention to the big things. So I know on Pesach the really important question is, what shia do you adopt for a Kezayas of Mark? <laughs> and, but, and, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are at least 100,000 young Adelaide young Yidden learning just this in yeshivas throughout the world, more than ever in history. And it's good and it's important. But I just wanted there to be somewhere in the world, even if it's just in one place, where somebody asks the big question. If Pesach is a festival of freedom, what actually is the Jewish concept of freedom? Is it the same as everyone else? Is it the one shared by the citizens of Athens? Is it the one articulated by Thomas Hobbes and John Locke? Is it the one formulated by Thomas Jefferson? Or is there something a little bit different? Something unique to Judaism? Which I'm going to argue today, it is. And this is not unimportant. Because today, you know, we know the world is terrible, going haters, uh, idiots, we know all this. But let's pause for just one moment and ask a simple question about where we stand in Jewish history. Friends, we've been around for a long time. Twice as long as Christianity, three times as long as Islam. And yet ask yourself, was there ever before in the 4,000 years of history a moment when we simultaneously had sovereignty and independence in the state of Israel and freedom and equality in the diaspora. Was there ever a time that we had both of these together? 
So here we are in this situation in which every single prayer that our Bubas and Zaydas and their Bubas and Zaydas prayed has come true. And what are we doing? What are we as Orthodox Jews doing in Medinat Yisrael to say what should be the Jewish state as a free society? What are we doing as participants in the liberal democracies of the West, the USA, the Europe, to explain what is a free society? Is, the, is it the case that the only models Judaism can offer to the 21st century are number one, a bold and courageous return to the ghetto and the shtetl? Or number two, to capitulate to the zeitgeist, the Ruach Hasman, to the morality of a Twitter and Facebook edge. Is that all we've got to choose from? Where are we meeting the challenge of our time as to what the Jewish present should be in the liberal democracy of the United States? And I love your presidential election. I haven't, thank you very much. I haven't seen a comedy series like this in years. But, you know, there is another Jewish voice. I know we all feel the burn come be your comments. But there is another Jewish voice to be heard. And it has to be heard here in the States. It has to be heard in Europe. Above all, it has to be heard in Medina Israel. And that is what I want, therefore, to do today. I want to ask, what is the Jewish concept of freedom? And let me begin with a simple question. Just remind me, because... So, we have life in Israel on Sunday morning. What is the Hebrew Hebrew? Just remind me. Hebrew. Exactly. Pesach is. It's my Hebrew thing. We celebrate the fact that God took us. May have good. Hebrew. At the beginning of the Seder, we say. So, the Hebrew for freedom is Hebrew. Wrong. Does the word Herut as freedom appear anywhere in the whole of the world? The answer is no. What is the Hebrew for freedom? Exactly. Pajit Mishbonit went for a chicken in the other place. The word is the Hebrew for freedom. Kodesh is the biblical word for freedom. Or if you're more poetically inclined, and you've been to Philadelphia, I love going to Philadelphia. Philadelphia, they have something called the Liberty Bell. This is terrific. It's got a big crack down the middle. It's made in London. This immortal testimony to British craftsmanship. And around it, as you know, it's uh, the Pacific from Punch to the Heart, by Ibrahim 25 verse 10. Across him, draw the arrest of pollution. Liberty to the land and all its inhabitants. So the Hebrew are rare and poetic. Hebrew word for freedom is Gerard, the Rodikrala, the Bhagavad, but the normal Tanakh concept is Kodesh. The word, the Hebrew root, Chet Resh Ab, appears only once in the whole Tanakh. And you will tell me, because you know where it appears. In so what is the connection between this one occurrence of the word in Biblical Hebrew 
meaning engraving, and the word freedom. What does freedom and engraving got to do together? It seems to me, I, I, I'm not a, a, a linguist, but it seems to me that the word chetresh af is related to or even the same as chetresh et, because if you remember, at the Ego Hazon, Aaron shapes the whole metal, but heret, with an engraving tool. And I suspect that the Hebrew for the Egyptian magicians, Khartoumaymitzrayim, is that these were people who knew how to engrave hieroglyphics. Possibly for magical purposes, magical inspirations. So we have a, a word that only appears once in Tanakh, although several times with a variant spelling, and it means to engrave. And what has this got to do with that is my overarching point. However, I now want to ask you a series of questions that may seem unrelated, but will take us on the journey we need to understand what freedom is. And let me ask straight away the next question. How do you tell a Jewish story? <laughs> yeah, I, I always have to do work this out. I remember the BBC 20 years ago asking me to make a television program for much, because I'd never been. I saw that as a black hole in history. I didn't know that we could extract meaning from it. And I said to them, I will do it if I can tell the story the Jewish way. And they said, what is the Jewish way of telling a story? And I quoted to them in English what appears in four words in the Mishnah society. A Jewish story begins with bad news. We acknowledge, we are honest, that not everything about our history has been joy. We don't hide from the bad news. But we are Messiah and Kresheva. We always end on a note of hope. Always. A Jewish story always ends on a note of hope. Kresheva, and that is the Mishnah Mishnah, which defines a Jewish way of telling a story. Now we know, and I've given it to you in, I think, source one, that two Amorim, two of the first generation of Amorim, Rav and Shmuel, differed as to what exactly that means on Seder night. And Shmuel says, the way we tell the story is, have you got it there? Exactly. If you can make a little shot of the two rabbis, 
so it takes a little longer. So we begin immediately after Manishtana with the Holy Bajimu Parov and Shayam and the Yotiena Hashem, the Yotazoka, the Shrata Tuya, Yulot, etc. So we do it like Shmuel, and then a bit later on in Nagara, we do it like Ralph, we fill up all your own deliverance. Now, when it comes to Shmuel, the explanation is Shmuel is following his Shita, and Shmuel says in Source 2, can you see Omar? Omar Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Omar Rabbi Yehuda, and Paul and Pinkul and Lovin, so I do a little bit of Mashiach, I do a little bit of Mashiach, I do a According to Rabbi Yehuda, the Mashiach, the days of the Mashiach are wondrous and supernatural. We give the Shmuel, don't we Shmuel, ain't there no one said, what's a Mashiach, I'll let you move on. The only difference between now and the Messianic age is now we're under the dominance of other powers and in the Yavotra Mashiach we will become independent again. No more Shimon Malki. So according to Shmuel, the journey from slavery to freedom is a body of money, we were slaves to Pharaoh, and God brought us out, so no more Shimon Malki. So Shmuel's Shita is quite simple and self-evident. What is more, Shmuel is accords with the Torah itself. Have a look in source three. There it is. Anyone know which which of the four children this is? That's the Pretty much what Shmuel says. In other words, Shmuel, his logic is simple. We were slaves in Egypt, God took us out, and he gives the answer the Torah itself gives. The question of Rav is really, really difficult. Because Rav tells us, when were our ancestors? I don't know. Terror, you know, he has taken us back to before Abraham. What's that got to do with Pesach? You with me? I mean, Pesach means when we're slightly unique, you've got to do that. What is the prehistory? What, what, what are they, what is George Lucas doing with Star Wars? You know, you get a, you get a, a pre, prehistory along with it. Okay. So why is he taking us back that far? And what is his proof text? And here it is in source 5. Do you have that? Oh, or uh, source 4, if you like. I, I, I put it in English so you'll follow it. The Asoki of Shuet Hoshite Israel, Shema the Yikrodas in May Israel, Roshel, Mushoftah, etc., etc. And verse 2 in source 4, the Yama Shuel Koham, Koham Hashem of Israel, the Ibanah. Yeshua the Satan, the Elon, Terah, Rabbi, Abram, Rabbi, Nathoni, Abdullah, This is chapter 5, 20, chapter 24 in the book of Joshua. Does anyone know how many chapters there are in the book of Joshua? 24. 24. So this is the last chapter of a post-Mosaic book, the book of Joshua. What is Rob doing? Taking us there. Sorry, when did, remember what he said, you know how you are, but it's all right, how you are, 
Zion. Initially, our ancestors were idolaters, and now God has brought us close to his service. When did God bring us close to his service? Pardon? And I've seen them. So why does the world say so? Why does we quote the verse the Pesukim from Parshat Yisrael? When God says, you have seen how I took you all from Egypt, out on Sharim on eagle's wings, and brought you to me, and now, I, I, even though the whole world is mine, you will be to me, but then to you, my mother's going to go to you. You will be to me a cherished possession, a kingdom of grace, not only. The proof text should be staring him in the face. Why is he taking us from the book of Exodus to the book of Joshua and indeed to the very last chapter in the book of Joshua? It's a big problem. What's he telling us? What is the story going to Secondly, the chapter itself is absolutely extraordinary. I want you to see this directly in English. What happens next? The bit we don't read on the Satan line. Here it is. Can you see uh, in the English one paragraph down? Now fear the Lord, yeah? And serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Yeah, I've heard anything like this. Judgment says to people, right, okay, guys, here's the moment of choice. You can serve idols here, you can serve those idols, these idols. Uh, you can eat a hundred different kinds of great food, whichever you like. I'm going to serve our God, but you can serve whatever you like. And the people don't take you up on it. Probably think. Then the people answer, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. With Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed these great signs before him in our eyes, etc., etc. To leave the rest of the paragraph. Then Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's jealous God. He won't forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord, if you serve our God, he'll turn and bring this on. So whatever you do, don't be too. This was, you know, many years ago. Somebody asked me, how do I fill our half-empty shoes? I said, it's easy. Just put a big sign outside, no Jews admit. <laughs> Every Jew will want to go. You know? So, I mean, just to say that, just don't even think of it. It's much too difficult to be Jewish. What do they say? The people said to Jeremiah, no, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord? Yes, we are witnesses. What is Joshua doing here? And why did Ralph somehow see this as the hopeful end of the story of the Exodus? It's a very odd thing indeed. So that's question, my next question. What, according to Ralph, is going on? And now, oh, I'm, I'm going to jump over some resources. And I'm now going to ask you a very, very simple question. Okay? I want you to listen carefully to the question. Bahaya, ki yomu alaykem b'neikem, 
ما معواده ازت کنم چون میگویم چانس هست که وارد سرویس میگی which That's the rush. Now I want to ask a simple question. What word in what the Russian says singles him out as a rush? According to the Haggadah, it's Lachem Olo. He said, what does that mean to you? And not to me. Of course, it's not that obvious. The obvious question now we get asked is how old is the Russia? How old are these children? Are they above the mitzvah age or under the mitzvah age? Let's suppose they're under the mitzvah age. They are asking, he's asking the right question. Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm, I don't yet know what it is to do a mitzvah. I'm not yet bar mitzvah. So please tell me, Mom, I don't know what's going on. Nothing rotten about that. So not everyone agrees with the Haggadah. Let me give you another possibility. The Meshach Chachma. He says something really remarkable, and that's him from the Fitz. He says, in the case of the town and the case of the Chachma, the Torah says, Vayatni Yishol Chavim Chamarba, when your child asks you. But what does it say in the case of the Raja? Vayatni Yomroh they are not, the right, these kids are not asking, they're telling. In other words, they're not interested in the answer. And that is what defines this as a Russia. He's only asking to, to make fun of, he doesn't want an answer because he doesn't say, that is, that's incredible. Now, but now, I want to show you the third possibility. I've got it in uh, source 10. This is the tongue of Yerushalmi, and the Yerushalmi gives us another meaning altogether. And it says the following: Ben Rasha, Mahulam, Ma'avodazeshvachem, Ma'atarah shehazeshvachem, Matrikim aleinu bolshanavishana. It's a shlat from Pesach, right? So. What, according to the Talmud, is the key word? What? What? Avodah? Avodah? Hard work. Why all this hard work? Now, I want you to listen carefully to the Yerushalmah. And it says, By Yadidu, the tribe, the Egyptians, the Israelites, all of it, what's the key word? Four times in one sentence. right? That's what they suffered from in Egypt. Now, what the Torah tells us will be their liberty after Egypt? Can you see um, source 11? Yeah? God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush. You will serve God on this mountain. The word used for their slavery and the word used for their liberation 
is the same one. We do something nice in Egypt, in England. We translate Abodah when it comes to the Egyptians as slavery. And when it comes to Abodah in relation to God, we call that servant. But we forget it's the same word in Hebrew. And now you can see what Yerushalmi is saying. What does the Rosh ask? Mother, how did we get it? There we were servants to Pharaoh. Now we're servants to God. It's the same thing. We're going to change your mask. You've shifted the deck chairs on the Titanic. There's no real difference. There we were avoiding, now we're avoiding. I'll say, Pharaoh, I'm there. That'd be horrible. What difference? Did it make? We still are not free. And that is the power. According to Yerushalmi, the Russia is asking a real deep and searching question. So now, I want to ask, if we are all koshifing up, we're all slaves. And now, we've really been set free. Does that generate a free system? If we are all free to do what we like. That's what the word Hoshi means. When a slave is a slave, he has to do whatever his master tells him. When he goes to the now, he has nobody to tell him what to do and what not to do. He can do whatever he likes. Is it society in which any, everyone can do whatever they like? A free society. What is it? What? Yeah. Ish and Reo Michael. Exactly so. It will be like the anarchy, the chaos. You know there's something in physics called chaos theory. I always believe that was discovered in order to describe Jewish life. <laughs> we say, the Lord is my shepherd, but no Jew is ever a sheep. <laughs> so, you know, we're all going in our different directions, and we have that situation, which exactly so is, or like the last verse in Sefer Shoftim, which says, Bagamim Ha'em, Ein Melech Yisrael, Ish Hayakshad Ve'enav Yaseh, with nothing in Israel, everyone did what they wanted. And that is what Hobbes called the state of nature, the war of every man against every man, in which, as he famously said, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It's Syria, Iraq. That's what he in order to have a free society, collectively, what do you mean? We need law. We need the rule of law. But now tell me, does the law give us freedom? The law is a constraint on our freedom. So what do we need in order for the law to set us free? Now, Chazal had a remarkable view on this. And you all know it, it's in the next one of the most famous of all passages. I'm 
number 12, famous Martin Chambers, by the tattoo, who protected the heart, has already this to me, not they stood at the foot of the mountain, but they stood underneath the mountain. Omar al-Adimi, Barakam al-Barakasa, Malamit Shekhova, Barakash Baruch Aleyhem, Isahar Kedigis, Omar al-Hafni, Matem al-Hafni, Matem al-Hafni, Matem al-Hafni, or this was a completely free choice. Like the true president who says, all those in favor say I, all those against say I resign. That was just one of this one now. What does Hazal mean? I mean, Hashem asks Moses to ask the people, do you accept? And they say, Hashem, I said, Twice they say that, and then the third time they say, but each one they say it three times. Once in Shabbat chapter 19, twice in Shabbat chapter 24. What, what, are the, what are the comes on saying? How are they not free? The short answer is, you're in the middle of the desert, and you haven't yet got a land. You have without a kind of horrible you know, water to drink or food to eat. How free is that? And this is really the one. As I was saying, if they didn't have a real
This was the first moment they were really free. Not when they left Egypt, not when they crossed the Red Sea, not when they were still dependent on Hashem for water from a rock, manna from heaven, and deliverance from all their enemies. It was only when they entered the land, settled the land, that was when they were really free. And that is why Rav gives us this definition. And that's a fundamental thing. Right? Even with the again, that's the extreme case was in the first great age of anti-Semitism. And there's every reason not to be a Still they say, we will be people to Hebrew, even worship Hebrew thought. That's the extreme. <coughs> That's what Maureen Shabbos says. But I'm now telling you the first place. And that, according to Ralph, is what freedom is. And of course, that concept of freedom defines freedom in the modern world. This is what Thomas Jefferson meant when he wrote to the Declaration independence that government derives its authority from the consent of the government. That is John Locke's and Thomas Jefferson's version of Already understood by Hazal in the days of Gomorrah, already understood by Rav in the third century. And to be really free, we have to have a real, genuine existence. Shall we or shall we be governed by these laws? Freedom means I am subject to laws to which I gave my free consent. That is the concept of freedom. As it emerged in the modern world, you know why it emerged in the modern world? Because in the, after the great wars of religion, following the Reformation, People sat down and read Tanakh. You know, this is why freedom was born in the 17th century, because of one Christian called John Calvin in Geneva who read Tanakh, and they go his contemporaries read Tanakh, and that is what, if you read John Milton, if you read Thomas Hobbes, if you read John Locke, if you read Spinoza's Tractatus Theological Religious, all of them are focusing on Tanakh. They are not defining their freedom in terms of Plato's Republic or Aristotle's politics. They are basing their principle on tonight. Even Thomas Paine would have thought that. Even Thomas Paine begins, you know, that common sense, the pamphlet that sold more than 100,000 copies in the beginning of 1789 and uh, 1776 and caused him to be called father of the revolution. If you read Thomas Paine's quoting on one and two and three from tonight. And that is the Jewish concept of freedom that was adopted by England and America in the 17th century. That freedom means obedience to laws that were accepted with the freedom with the consent of the government. And that is how Judaism changed the modern world. As I put out in my Haggadah, People usually say there are no repeatable experiments in history. It is actually strange that there was an experiment in history. The modern world was shaped by four revolutions. The English Revolution in 
in the 1640s, the American Revolution in 1776, the French Revolution in 17, and the Russian Revolution in 1917. They were very different revolutions. The English and the American revolutions were based on tonight. The Russian and French revolutions were based on philosophy. In the case of France, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in the case of Russia, Kalman. England and America gave rise, not without a lot of hassle and war, civil war, but gave rise to free society, the rule of democracy. Whereas the French Revolution gave rise to the reign of terror and the guillotine, and the Russian Revolution gave rise to Stalin, the ruler, and the guillotine. That is a controlled experiment in history. Judaism gave the world freedom. It did not give the world revolutionary power. And that is as near to a controlled experiment as we will get. And now we understand why he makes his end of Joshua the first moment of clear and absolute freedom in Jesus. But we haven't quite got there yet. And here we are, we've got uh, source 13. I, I think this is one of the really poetic moments in the history of the continuum. The Omer says the Pimpi are brought in source 13. Balukot Basel Gimema, Bamechal, Mechtad al Pimru, Harut al Halukot, Altikrat Harut, Ela Kheirut, Sheemat al Ben Horin, Ela Mishelosek al Hamishon. Sometimes, People make these poetic leaps in defining new words. Was it that who, 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 who was it who, in your phrase, took for the word electricity? Those angels in Ezekiel's vision that we read on Thursday of Shavuos. Terror. You know, these angels go backwards and forwards. And somebody had the poetic genius to say, that's an alternating current. That's not You don't realize how poetical that word is. A similar leap of poetry is here in that line from Deuteronomy. The rabbis take the word engraved and out of it form a new word for freedom. And I want to understand why. The answer is this. Tell me the difference between writing with ink on paper or parchment and engraving stuff. What's the difference? <laughs> the writing is of a different material to the paper. It's superimposed on the paper. It's on the surface of the paper. And therefore it can be out. But in engraving, it's not from the outside some separate material, it's from within. And because it's carved out from within, it can't be easily blotted out. It becomes indelible. Now, I want you to think exactly of what it is when we were children, and we knew there certain things we shouldn't do. What, when we were young kids, 
Why, why didn't you do the things that parents wanted to do? Because they said so. And if we did them, they punished us, right? And that's not exactly called freedom. That's why kids don't like it very much. What happens when we grow up? As we grow up? outside imposed on us by in on paper. It's something engraved in us like something carved in stone. And that according to the Savior is what real freedom is. But you keep the laws not because somebody has stamped them on you like in on paper, but because they're you are so worried about them and internalized them think you understand why this thing is wrong, why we have to go try and sleep sometime at night, and why we can't watch television 24 hours a day. I'm sorry, I can't, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, when we grow up, we realize this, and it becomes part of us. And that, and the Lord is eternal. It's one way to This, the concept of internalization, is born really at the end of the 18th century with the Magna Carta and then becomes part of Chiazes and Kohlberg's developmental psychology and all of that. Did Hazawa have a concept of internal language? You write about Odyssey in the modern tradition. You write it, so it's 14. Amara Bihiska, Benchina, Amara Bihiska, Amara Bihiska, Amara Bihiska, Amara Bihiska, can a parent renounce the honor The children are supposed to honor you if you say, chill, relax, it's okay. Are you allowed to do that? The moral says yes. Out your mobile, further, further. If you renounce your honor, you're entitled. Okay? Moral now asks, can a rabbi renounce the honor? So, the Mormon says, yeah, have you got it? If he renounces his honor, he doesn't have to do it. He's still got to stand when he comes in the room, he's still got to obey him, etc. Rabbi Yosef, says, no, even a rabbi can renounce the honor of Eugene. And we want to know why he says this. And he brings a most peculiar proof. If you see it, Hashem will live with me at M, your mom. Tell me, does the most important person in a meeting arise first or last? Pardon? I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I've got a real cultural problem. You don't have a royal family. <laughs> when does the queen arrive? She was arriving. So the martyr thing. Terror tells us that as the Israelites were going through the desert, Hashem went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud by night. Whereas the Kodesh Baruch was our king, our king of Canaan, and becomes lost. So when he went first, he was being mobile further. He was renouncing the others he did. And if God can, we can. So tomorrow, in the name of Robert, says, How can you ask What kind of comparison? Also, the Kodesh Baruch will delay you, the Torah delay you, you can only renounce what belongs to you. 
Now, God owns everything. He owns the world, he owns the tower, he can renounce. But a rod, does he own the tower? It's Hashem's tower, it's not his tower. So you can't compare the two. And the one then says, um, what is it? Here is a road to people like from the 
designer would like, or the creator would like. That is real And therefore, if you want real freedom, you have to do it through education. Now, we finally said in one place in another, in an extraordinary passage, which Jews tend not to read very much. And I want you to read it. This is not unimportant. Source 15. Comes from Jeremiah chapter 34. Yeah. If you love them. In Aegam in Bahim, the Omashem, the Gorazi had made Israel, they had made Yehuda, Brit, Hadashem. I will make with my people Israel a new covenant or a renewed covenant. The Loki British and Gorazi had done a town, the Yamatsi, Gibi had done a it's right. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I had to grab hold of them and slap them out of Egypt. Look at the next verse, 32. I will place my law inside them. They will internalize. For I will leave and I will write this law on their hearts. I will be their God my In other words, when Hashem took us out of Egypt, he had everything was against our ancestors' will. He had to slap them out. He had to get the Israelites and the Egyptians to drive them out. Like Lot and Saddam, they didn't want to leave. And always they were doing it against their will. They were keeping my terror against their will, and they kept rebelling against me. I'm going to make a brief Hadashah with them, which will constitute, as it were, engraving the law on their hearts. Anyone know why you don't read this passage very often? <laughs> this is the, one of the key texts of Christianity. If you ever read, look at the New Testament in Hebrew, it's called Rit Hadashah. It comes from that Hazur. What they didn't understand was Chodesh, as in Rosh Chodesh in Hebrew, doesn't just mean new, it means renew. Now, when is Jeremiah saying You know when Jeremiah is saying this. Jeremiah is saying this at the time of Korban by Rishon. In chapter 29, he's already sent his letter to the exiles in Babylon. He's talking to the exiles and telling them that through the Babylonian exile they will come back and there'll be a new relationship between the Israelites and Hashem. And that actually is what happened. Because in Babylon, they studied the Torah and kept the Torah not because it was the law of the land, while they were living in Israel, the Torah was the law of the land. In Babylon, it was no longer the law of the land. They were under Shibud Malkins, under Babylonian rule. What then was it? It was the law of the heart. And that is what Ezra and Nehemiah do when they turn, return from Babylon in the mid-fifth century BCE. Ezra convenes the whole people. He teaches them 
Noah, he creates something called the Anshay Knesset Agdullah. He creates the whole infrastructure that developed, eventually gave rise to rabbinic Judaism, to Mishnah, Gemara, Talmud, all of us. And Jews became the first people in history to have a universal education system already set up by Yeshua ben Gamla in the first century. Britain did not have universal compulsory education until the Education Act of 1870. And at that time, Britain was Great Britain. He <laughs> ruled over the border of the land mass of the earth, the British Empire. But only in 1870 was a universal compulsory education. Jews had it. Seventeen hundred years before then, with the educational reforms in Zimbabwe, Russia, of Yeshua ben We became, as Josephus said, the people whose laws are so Jeremiah is telling us that when Jews return from Babylon, there'll be a new relationship, and that relationship is spelled out in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 18, when the people renew their covenant with God voluntarily. There's nobody, no, no one here telling them to. They have the greatest covenantal renewal ceremony in all of Jewish history, and on that, our whole and that is exactly what the Jewish Judaism is about. It is the British the renewed covenant after the return from Babylon, based on education. No longer was Jewish existence predicated solely on kings and palaces and power. It was predicated on the big Knesset, the big Midrash, on teaching and learning, and becoming the world's great culture predicated on education. This is a unique concept of truth. You will not find this anywhere else. Nowhere else will you find that in order to be free, not only must it be the consent of the government out of which we get democratic elections, but the educational system has to be such that we learn why the laws are thus and not other and they become part of our character. If you want a free society, educate the children on why it's important the Lord, so that my freedom is not purchased at the cost of your freedom. And when government after repressive government fell in the Arab Spring of 2011, from then to this day, has anyone got up in the United Nations and said, freedom depends on what we teach our children? Still not. That is why children in many parts of the world today are taught to hate. They are taught, I can only get my freedom by abolishing your freedom. This message of freedom, which is essential to the 21st century, nobody's yet woken up to. They think all you've got to do is like school, get rid of the tyrant, leave Egypt, and you're free. But Rob told us, and more than that, Hazel told us you need a lot Because you get rid of the tyrant, all you do is create anarchy, which is a prelude to a new form of tyranny. And the world still has not woken up. And this is a concept, Kerud, for which the rabbis, with brilliant poetic insight, coined this new term and created an educational infrastructure, and the result was unbelievable. You did not need the coercive power of the state to get people to keep the law. 
that is what this institution is for. Friends, we learned a little about the unique concept of freedom. Now let's get on sharing. But without any secret of it, we can have what I have shared this summer. And let us go out there and be a source of pride for our sharing and a blessing to the world.